our mission, and we choose to accept it, is zero injuries and zero environmental impact. A healthy workforce and environment is key to our nation's continued success. The Mission Zero podcast is a deep dive with the industry's top experts into the health, safety and environmental aspects of today's workplace. Our mission is to be a platform for new ideas and strategies that, when implemented, will improve our safety, our environment and how we govern out business. We are making the world safer and we're going to have fun doing it. Welcome back to the Mission Zero podcast. Uh, I'm Justin Overstreet. I'm here uh, on remote assignment. Uh, Jeff Peoples is uh, back in the Houston area, but I came up to Fort Worth today to talk to one of my favorite people in the world. Uh, he's one of my best friends, and he just so happens to have a, a really uh, a unique profession and a, a unique background. So, Jonathan Jacobs, welcome to the podcast. Oh, well, thanks for having me. And I've watched all your other podcasts, and you say that it's your favorite person every time. So, well, I don't feel that great when we and but we still, just but still glad to be here we, we just met a minute ago but still i appreciate you doing that and i'll edit that out but um you know jonathan you and i have known each other for gosh over a decade now we've mm. worked together uh we've been friends and you know families of our friends we our kids have grown up together the same age you know those types of things um and, and you've always had a really you know unique uh background but uh and i know that obviously but uh, our listeners don't necessarily so give us a give us a rundown of kind of how you got to where you are today yeah yeah so um you know obviously today i'm the head of services and support for shield ai formerly martin uav we're a a drone provider and producer uh predominantly in the defense sector uh out of uh here out of north texas and in california and a few other places but uh you know from this i've been in the unmanned industry for probably the last decade or so um and then in aviation since longer than I'd like to admit, um, joined the Marines just after 9-11 uh, and, and ended up uh, unwittingly actually getting into aviation. I uh, signed up for what was a radio operator job, thinking that I was going to be uh, airdropped into wherever and, uh, and operating radios, and it turned out that they, I was just going to be working on C-130s and operating radios in airplanes, um, which turned out to be the best thing that could have ever happened to me. Did you not realize airplanes had radios? Well, you know, I did, but... so. So I, I actually wanted to be a ranger like my brother, and so I. Uh, so I you went, joined the Marines? Well, I joined. I tried to join the Army first, <laughs> oh, okay. and uh, and I said I want to be a ranger, and they said, well, we can't guarantee you that, but if you go infantry, you might be able to option for for ranger school later. And I asked my brother about that, and he said, well, uh, I went in in '88, and there's guys that I know that are still waiting for ranger school, so maybe don't. And so uh, I walked next door to the Marine Corps uh, recruiting office and said, you know, I, w- I want to be the closest thing to a ranger. Um, that you have and they said well you could do you know uh, at the time they had force recon and they're like but you got to go infantry first and then option for force recon and i said yeah they tried this, I've heard next, that they tried story. this next door yeah, I've heard and i said well what else do you have and so they said well we have this they had an the airborne radio operator and i thought that's it i'm gonna do that was not what i thought it was but it turned out to be amazing it got me into aviation which mm-hmm. uh was not ever something that i thought i would do um but you know, through years in the Marine Corps and aviation, I actually ended up, uh, after I got out of the Marine Corps, got off active duty, uh, I got a call from a friend of mine that was a navigator in C-130s that I'd flown with for years, and he said, hey, what do you know about drones? And I said, nothing. And he said, 
well, what do you know about Afghanistan? I said, well, a lot. I know some things. Yeah, <laughs> I know some things. Um, and he's like, cool. Hey, well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just got on with this company and we're out of Washington and we're, uh, you know, basically you just come on and, and, you know, go over and fly drones over in Iraq and Afghanistan and wherever else. And I said, that sounds like fun. And, uh, he said, yeah, they pay really well. I said, okay, cool. So I left the job that I was at and I started flying drones and that was in 2008. Uh, and since then I've been in UAS, counter UAS, um, both in the defense and civilian side, uh, like I said, probably for the last decade or so. Yeah. And then I pulled you into the oil and gas industry for a brief period because I was like, yeah, everyone should experience that horror, you know, every once in a while. Yeah, no. And it was the, it was the perfect timing as well. I got right. to experience the brief high and then, you know, the, the precipitous dropout that I think everybody rolls through at some point. Uh, if you're saying it long enough, for sure. Um, but even in the oil and gas industry, we still utilized UAV technology mm-hmm. uh, successfully. Um, yeah. And we did so uh, when there was a biblical flood mm-hmm. down in, uh, you know, the, uh, the Madisonville area in Texas between Fort Worth and Houston. And um, we, we used it quite effectively. Yeah. You know, interestingly enough, I mean, I know you and I had talked about the idea of drones in, in the in the oil field for a bit prior to that mm-hmm. happening. And that was a really good um, event to kind of drive us into it. But I would say that that experience was, for me, the moment where I recognized really the utility that drones could have uh, in that space. Uh, I mean, you obviously remember you were there. Um, you know, they, they probably weren't. Um, but, you know, we we were able to save hundreds of thousands of dollars in remediation costs and fines and other things um, by being able to utilize that drone to check on uh, these wells and to understand water flows and stuff like that. And so that for me was the moment that I realized that this investment of a thousand dollars or fifteen hundred dollars, whatever it cost at the time, yielded immediate and extreme results and savings. Right. Um and, and not only, you know, per personnel and, and financial costs of having to, to send people out there. So Yeah, and it was a really tricky area because it butted right up against the Trinity River. Yep. And so any hydrocarbon loss could potentially flow into there. And like you said, you we were able to use the drone to see the actual flow of the water mm-hmm. uh, and then deploy, you know, booms and things like that. To, yep. to And we got how much oil ended up in the Trinity? Zero. Zero. Yep. And that uh, was and, yeah, and that and that was the you know after working with the railroad commission and, and working mm-hmm. with the remediation teams, they said, we've done you know hundreds of these and you should have never been able to contain it the way you did. Right. And it was literally just being able to get that perspective, uh, because looking from the ground you see a sheen and it's really hard to tell. But when you get above it, mm-hmm. um, you can see easily. And and you know alternatively you would have had to have rented an airplane and, and gotten a pilot and you know, coordinated all that uh, to get down to that airspace. And then you're somewhat limited. But here we were able to deploy the, you know, a UAS within a handful of minutes, you know, and uh, yeah, with an airplane, even you've got to wait for that information to come back from the airplane. So even with a, with a UAV, we were able to in real time Mm -hmm. have someone out on a fan boat Mm -hmm. with boom and direct them. Hey, go here. Cause you can see it's first person perspective. Correct. You can see where it's going. So you're right. The utility of the UAV, um, I always I was always looking for an excuse to get one professionally anyway because they're they're cool, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and it just was the right opportunity mm-hmm. and it and it yielded immediate dividends. It was it was huge. Yep. Uh, and we also got to do some integrity testing. You did specifically mm-hmm. landing it in the water, and that was fantastic. Yeah, it was not uh, you know. <laughs> 
Sometimes you <laughs> yeah. gotta do. It. You know, it was early days for the technology, and batteries weren't what they are today. Sure. Um, and, and obviously, uh, operating from in a maritime environment is it has unique, maritime, yeah. unique considerations. Um, and by maritime, you mean from a, a fan boat. Uh, yeah. And and yelling, hurry up! It's falling out of the sky. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I will say it's a it's a credit to DJI's pr- uh, product quality even back then that we were able to pull it out and dry it, and it uh, it flew again. Yeah, I think mainly because it lost all power before it hit the water, <laughs> yeah. so there was no electricity well, yeah, going through it, it to it fry anything. Been. Yeah, it could have been. So, um, you know, but but again, that even, I mean, that was what, 2020? That would have been like 2014. 2014, yeah. yeah. Which was, you know, very early. It was prior to a lot of the regulations that we have now in Part sure. 7 that actually, you know, was codified around that. Back then it was called the Section 333 exemption that you had to have. Um, and And... You know, even back then, I think I started recognizing in industry, this is not just a defense tool. This is a tool that's going to have real impact on a lot of different industries, Um, you know, not only from just efficiencies that you gain, but also obviously uh, the safety of being able to check things remotely. I mean, ultimately, that's the end game for any any unmanned system is to be able to provide data and intelligence about an area or a, a situation without having to risk putting a human being into that scenario right and and with the you know accessibility of of infrared cameras Mm -hmm. and and those types of things you know FLIR cameras all Mm -hmm. those things are much more accessible now Mm. uh and you can outfit you know just regular quad quadcopter drones Mm -hmm. with those uh there's no reason to put a human at risk going into a a tank battery or whatever to to check for fugitive emissions or Mm -hmm. any type of thing you can you can think of and i remember when we were flying it first, uh, first of all, shout out to Ron Myrick with the yeah, yeah. Railroad Commission. I remember Ron, uh, he gave me a Texas flag patch I still have, mm. uh, and, and uh, just a great guy. But I remember we were flying that, uh, that drone, and, and he was just amazed by it. Mm-hmm. And he just thought, man, I don't know why more people aren't doing this. And, and I, I think it's and probably becoming more prevalent. Yeah, yeah, it, they are. Obviously, we're still waiting. I think the technology has outpaced the regulation, uh, as is typically the case. Uh, you sure. know, the, the government moves slow and the FAA moves probably even slower in many cases. Um, but what, what we are seeing now is as the regulations have loosened and, you know, the safety case for drones has been made as that, you know, these can operate in the national airspace with general aviation and manned aircraft in, in many cases, uh, you know, safely without incident, uh, that that's opening it up. And, and certainly are, they're being used in countless industries, everything from oil and gas, obviously, like we talked about, uh, you know, transmission line inspection, mm-hmm. power line inspection, uh, infrastructure inspections. Uh, again, anything, any time that you need to see, or you know, experience or capture some sort of thing, uh, there's an opportunity for for an unmanned system to to be used. Absolutely. So, and and so that was really my first kind of, you know, professional use mm-hmm. uh, of a drone. Again, I've always been drawn to that kind of thing as a probably the most passive hobbyist that you know I have. One, I've had two now, mm-hmm. uh, and. It's like I'm gonna get this one that's smaller because I can carry it and just do it whenever I want. And then I never take it anywhere. But um, so, so from that, uh, you transition back into out of the oil and gas mm-hmm. industry and back into uh, you and I again working together. This time in the the tech industry, mm-hmm. which was uh, particularly helpful, I think, to both of us to kind of see that side of mm-hmm. it. And then from there, uh, we transition. I go back into the oil and gas industry, and you go back into uh, unmanned systems. Mm-hmm. So uh, help me understand that. Yeah, so uh, 
you know, obviously being in the technology and the e-learning industry was was helpful for me. Um, I, I've since used a lot of what I learned there uh, with uh, DroneAcademy.com, which is, you know, obviously uh, a tool that I developed. Shameless plug, and that's Shameless fine. Shameless plug, hey, you know. I was going to get to that, but you beat me to it. <laughs> it you know, uh, but but being able to understand uh, e-learning and, and how, to, how to provide that. Obviously, drones are an amazing tool, and making them accessible to to the masses is, is only going to help adoption. So um, I, I did do that. Uh, like and, I said, and I think the, the the hobbyist doesn't understand if they're flying that thing, the the risk associated with it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's that's an interesting thing because the the FAA they they look at it like it's an aircraft. I mean, it is an aircraft to them. Uh, whether you're flying it as a hobbyist or as a you know professional mm-hmm. or for commercial use, and so you know you you are whether you want to be or not, you're an aviator. When you, when you when you you know power that thing up and throw it up into the air. Uh, you're an aviator as far as the FAA is concerned. That's why I wear a flight suit <laughs> every time I fly mine. I almost wore one today. I, I, I truly did, but I thought I don't. I don't want to do that. Um, I had that tan one that you gave me. Still, I, was, I started to wear it, but yeah, but uh, it, it is. And so, you know, obviously the FAA, their charter is to maintain mm-hmm. safety of the national airspace for general aviation, and commercial aviation, and, and all aviation really. So, uh, you know, unmanned aircraft tend to get um, demonized uh, in, in a lot of ways. Um, because there's no pilot on board to see and avoid. We can't swerve if something's coming close mm-hmm. to us. Um, but there are, uh, there have been huge strides in the last few years on, on onboard sensors and things that you can put on the aircraft um, to help you identify things that are around you, whether it be like ADS-B or, or uh, something like that, so that you, you know, can safely integrate in the national airspace and operate. I mean, we operate on a regular basis in the same airspace co-located with with manned aircraft and uh, you know you can do that safely in, in a lot of cases now as long as you coordinate it properly yeah and technology is catching up right mm-hmm. so like i know when i go to launch my i have a little mavic mini mm-hmm. 2 and when i go to launch it um if i'm near an airport or mm-hmm. restricted airspace it won't let me launch it yeah uh the software to run the drone just flat locks me out of it until i contact yep yeah uh, you know the yeah. the tower or whatever or just decide well forget it i'll just go find somewhere else to fly yeah and and that's uh, you know that's primarily a function of, of dji which obviously owns sure. a significant portion of the market uh right now for hobbyist and and commercial and light industrial drones uh and and i a lot of people complain about it but i think that it, it's an important part of the deal because the alternative to that as somebody who has spent thousands of hours in in, an, in a manned aircraft um I, I want to come home. Yeah, my you, family wants me to come yeah. home, um, and and I I don't want, and I, you don't I, want my tiny little drone to take your big yeah, plane exactly. out of the sky. Yeah, and you know there's there's debates about whether or not that's even possible. Uh, you know, with if it's if it's even debated, uh, I think we should probably <laughs> look at it. And yeah. I, I'm probably one that has gripe, like oh man. Yeah, uh, but at the same time, I completely understand it. So well, I do too. I mean, Alliance Airport is is four point seven eight five miles from this house, and, and of course you know that. Yeah, well, you know exactly. Uh, but but you're you know you're inside that five mile ring, and so you know if I wanted to go out in the backyard and fly, I I have to get approval from right. the FAA to fly in my backyard, um, which is kind of annoying, but it is what it is. Yeah, we ran into that actually. Uh, we had our roof replaced this last year. Mm-hmm. When the adjuster came out, he's like, "Yeah, travelers doesn't let us walk roofs anymore. We had mm-hmm. he had a, a drone. Yep, and uh, we're close enough to the airport there in Conroe. He had to get permission to fly it, but he, he yeah. sorted it out. But uh, so anyway, so 
you get back into the the UA, UAV space uh, with uh, with Martin, and then Martin was acquired by by Shield by AI. Shield AI. Yep. And I did some research on on Martin. It was actually um, started by a SEAL. Is that right? So Shield Shield is, Shield yeah. is. So, okay. so Shield AI uh, was was founded by uh, brothers Brandon and Ryan Singh. Uh, Brandon was a Navy SEAL. Uh, his brother Ryan. Uh, what he uh, started basically if your phone wirelessly charges mm-hmm. um, it's due to uh, Ryan's first company uh, he developed a technology that was eventually bought by Qualcomm wow. that, that thank yeah. you thank you Ryan thank you Ryan yeah so um, Brandon and Ryan uh, both of them incredibly gifted and talented and smart guys um, so yeah it's kind of an intimidating company to work for just because right. <laughs> you know the, uh, the the pedigree of the leaders but um, but that's a great thing and and, uh, and when I was reading it and it was it, with looking at it, it said, you know, what I understood was that he, as a SEAL, understood the importance of proper intelligence mm-hmm. uh, when you're executing the operation. So uh, help me understand kind of how S.H.I.E.L.D. is bringing that intelligence to the, the battlefield and, mm-hmm. you know, what that means for the safety of those operators. Yeah, no, that's that's a that's a great point. And, and like we were talking about earlier, since the beginning of warfare, mm-hmm. uh, getting the high ground was was key right whether it was taking a hill or putting somebody in a balloon as an observer airplanes satellites like you know we're slowly working our way up um and and uas uh, and spy planes in general if you can use that term um, have always been critical in providing you know relevant actionable data actionable intelligence to battlefield commanders um, so that they can make smart decisions about where to go right it's you have that perspective and so it allows you to make decisions and and see things that you otherwise wouldn't uh, and, and so, you know, smart decisions often save lives, right? That's the idea. So um, when, when you look at what, what S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, provides and kind of like the stack, if you will, of what we call it. So, you know, we, we have, uh, you know, small aircraft in, in the Nova that's like a quadcopter size aircraft. And then the VBAT, obviously, slightly larger. Uh, and so that provides kind of a, a tiered intelligence capability. So you have your persistent ISR intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance in your VBAT that can, you know, kind of loiter in an area and uh, and provide, you know, at full motion video. It can provide other types of signals intelligence, uh, things like synthetic aperture radars where you can do change detection. So, um, you know, for example, uh, you know, talk about safety cases. Um, I spent a lot of time in Iraq and Afghanistan utilizing these tools. And so, you know, using something like synthetic aperture radar, which is, um, primarily used in a lot of cases for things called what's called change detection and so you can fly over a road one day and it'll check it out and then you fly over the next day and the system can determine when a change has occurred so for example if there's disturbed earth or something like that that might indicate uh, a, a, a buried, bomb, something, uh, something that had been yeah. buried yeah something that had been placed um, it will it will key that and trigger it and so I mean there were multiple I mean I probably can't even count it on two hands and two feet, uh, the number of times that we identified these bombs that were in place because of this technology. And, you know, obviously being able to maneuver into that place with that intelligence and disarm mm-hmm. that, um, you know, it, it saves lives. It, it keeps people from getting injured. And so, and, um, and who knows how many lives uh, yeah, that you, saved, You right? can't I mean, even quantify no, that. Uh, no. right. Uh, and, and so, but I, I do know, uh, that, that it works and that that kind of intelligence provides, you know, very, very real uh, safety cases. So that's something that, that the UAS industry has been doing for years now, um, providing that type of 
you know, perspective, Overwatch, and capability. Uh, obviously, the technology with with uh, SIGINT and uh, wide area search and and synthetic aperture radar, it's, it's getting more and more interesting, right, and right. the capabilities are growing. But what Shield has been really great about doing is is two things. One is is moving down into the small space. So we've we've transitioned from the the Overwatch kind of wide area, like uh, large fixed wing. Yep. Yep. So, UAV. Yeah, and, and that's great, and that certainly ha- it, it, it's part of the layered approach. But the you know when you look at things like the Nova aircraft, which again is a, is a relatively small quadcopter that can even in um, communications denied and GPS denied environments can self navigate through buildings and, and areas and create uh, 3D models and maps of those buildings and even provide information about who or what might be in there. And so as it's as it's navigating itself mm-hmm. through the building, mm-hmm. it's sending. Can it send the map? To it the- can. Yeah. So it, it can. Uh, typically, again, this is going to be employed by by a frontline, uh, you know, soldier, marine, uh, special operations operator, uh, and so they are going to be somewhere nearby. So it can either save that information to the aircraft to be collected later, but in in more, you know, frequent use, it's it's a real time data transfer back to the control mm-hmm. unit, uh, and so a, a nearby unit can you know, in the matter of a few minutes, uh, have a, an accurate 3D model of the interior of a compound or a building to be able to make very real decisions about who goes where, who does what, and, and just to be able to know what you're walking into. Sure. I mean, obviously, knowing what's in the room that you're about to walk into, it could change your entire strategy or your, your tactics that you use. So um, it does seem handy. It, yeah, yeah, handy is a good way of putting it. So so when you look at this now, we've gone from UAVs being used to create perspective and, and large area intelligence to now we're bringing it back down to ground level, you know, building. Literally room by room. Room by room. Um, you know, that, that provides intelligence in real time to somebody who's literally about to engage in something that could be very uncomfortable. Yeah, um, engage in a mortal fight. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, when your life is on the line or you want to make sure you have absolutely every piece of information you can have. Yeah, I would love to be over-informed at that point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. you want to over- over-communicate that. Uh, and so that's that's really kind of the, the neat thing, especially as we start looking at, um, you know, obviously Russia's on the top of everybody's mind. But, uh, you know, you look at China, you look at other peer or near-peer, uh, you know, nation-state uh, operators that... Um, we may have conflict with at some point in the future and their capability to to disrupt uh, things like GPS or communications is very real and that's something that we never experienced in, in the asymmetric warfare with Iraq and Afghanistan in the truest sense so uh, we're kind of re-energizing these muscles of understanding that like we need we have to rely on technology because we're not going to have this obvious advantage that we had over the last 20 years of, of warfare uh, we have to be smart and so things like um, ANPT so being able to navigate in GPS or communication denied environments that kind of AI and AI is kind of a buzzword but but allowing machines to do things for us that we you know maybe couldn't do for ourselves in that situation um, that is going to be key to to us maintaining you know any kind of superiority in the battlefield because you better believe that that China is working on uh, AI and they're working on on computer systems that uh, you know with machine learning and vision systems that can uh, can continue to operate in those types of denied environments. And if we have to keep up, and we are right now. 
I believe. Yeah. Uh, I would I would imagine we're doing more than keeping up. We're probably uh, going to lead the the world in that. And, and we the, we are, um, but you know I don't I don't want to sit on our laurels for too long. You know you can't, uh, especially with technology as quickly as it moves. Um, and so, give me an idea of like. I, I know when you first started with Martin, they had the VBAT, mm-hmm. and uh, and that thing's very cool. Um, and there's some safety intrinsic in that mm-hmm. for the the people having to manipulate it right so it was built in a way that they could actually put their hands on it mm-hmm. yeah and that's and that's somewhat unique uh, you know obviously anybody who's been in manned aviation or unmanned aviation for any period of time uh, you know that you, you want to stay away from the big spinny things yeah uh, <laughs> yeah they're waiting <laughs> to chop you up yeah um and, and and so those safety exclusion zones are, are a, a, you know kind of a, a well-known and, and regarded safety metric that, that you just you don't violate them because there's no coming back if, mm-hmm. if you walk into that prop park. So um, that that's a consideration for a lot of aircraft, especially um, for UAS that, uh, like ours, operate in maritime environments, sometimes sm- smallish ships. And so uh, there's not a space as a premium, and especially in the VTOL space of vertical takeoff and landing. So for a lot of our competitors and a lot of aircraft manufacturers out there, they basically take an airplane and they strap a, strap, strap a, a quadcopter or a multi-rotor system to it to provide that vertical lift. But what you end up having is these exposed spinny death blades, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> as we like to call them. Uh, that, that, I'm going to stencil that on my yeah. Uh, when I get home. That, that you know provide a, a very real hazard, um, and oftentimes require you to be far away from the aircraft, which can be tricky if you need to to move it or manipulate it. Well, especially on a boat, like yeah. it'd be sometimes tough to even get out of the radius of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and there are some boats um, that are small enough that you, you really can't um, get out of the way of it. And and so obviously uh, the VBAT is you know, designed in a way that uh, using a ducted fan system, the, there's no exposed blade so that the, the propeller system uh, and the propulsion system is, is ducted in. So it actually, I mean, we, we teach our crews that, that you can during takeoff and landing, you know, hold on to it and maneuver it around if you need to a little bit. Uh, and, and that is kind of interesting because, again, it's not something that the regulators who make these safety mm-hmm. rules for, for unmanned systems, especially when you're working with the Department of Defense, they have these metrics that they like to look at. And so um, it's hard to help them understand that of like, no, no, this is safe. Mm-hmm. There's there's no no exposed blades. You can get this close and it's OK. Uh, and when they finally start realizing what that means for them operationally, uh, you know, it's great because, you know, you don't have to wear a a full flak and Kevlar and, you know, all that just to get near an airplane. You can choose to. If you want to. I mean. Does it provide enough lift to pick a person up? No. No. Well, I mean, no. No. So there. Come on, man. Depends on the person, I guess. I'm like a, a baby. A ba- yeah, yeah, no, you could definitely strap a baby to that if you if you wanted to. I wouldn't recommend it, but you could, um, just pure, purely physically. I'm just curious, uh, not that I'm going to do that. Um, so that's very cool. So it takes off vertically. It does. Uh, but also, I was, I was looking on the website, and, and it, it looks like there's uh, options to drop it out of planes. And it pick up and fly. You know, there's, yeah, there's all sorts of things. Um, you know, we're looking at ways to uh, deploy the system, if you will, sure. um, that are unique and, and useful. Uh, you know, whether you can, 
and whether you you should or you would need to can be different sometimes i just thought it was neat the the uh i believe it was an animation but it looked, yeah, it it looked pretty cool i was like oh, if that's not an animation i'm very happy but uh, yeah i think I, I know which one you're talking about i believe that is an animation um we've, we've done some physics simulations on it and uh, yeah. it's uh, it should be theoretically possible but we we haven't had the opportunity to go throw one out yet I figured that out. Man. Let me know when that happens. <laughs> yeah. I want to come watch. So we have we we do uh, with the Nova aircraft um, that can be deployed from uh, you know from a, another aircraft, whether it be a fixed wing or uh, you know another um, another drone uh, or manned aircraft. We can deploy those. Um, That's pretty cool. Yeah, which is pretty neat. So so essentially, then a VBAC could carry one yeah. of the Novas and then deploy it yeah or more um, and, and that's kind of the idea long term right as you think about the idea of you know you have this drone and you're flying around and you say hey I think I see something that bears a little bit more research and then from there you can drop a, an autonomous Nova system that could fly in and navigate the area and provide you know feedback either as a relay through the VBAT or directly to ground units um, to help them make a good decision could it then go redock um, in theory yeah I mean, Elon can land a rocket. Yeah. So. Yeah, you know, Elon's a great guy. He's very, very smart. <laughs> He's um, got a lot going on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we, we uh, you know, we, we look at the Nova as, um, you know, we, we haven't, I don't know that we've we've tried to redock it yet, but, um, you know, there's other things. But you, you might not have to. There's like, other to things your you point, can do with If it. you could carry, you know, more than one of those mm -hmm. on a VBAT, then you might not have to redock. You could just deploy another one. Yeah, yeah, and there's there's absolutely other um, terminal states that you could see with with Anova. You know, sure. once it's completed its mission, um, there's all sorts of things you could do with it. So, uh, one of the other things I thought was unique about the VBAT is that all of the uh, optics and stuff, the mm -hmm. the camera, all mounted on the nose. Mm -hmm. Most of it, yeah, and it rotates. Yep. So if it's in a vertical position, you can still rotate the camera over. Yeah. And one of the applications that I saw on the the uh, website. A civilian application was uh, specifically used inspecting um, offshore platforms. Yep. And so it was able to hover out there above the water or whatever level you needed it, mm -hmm. and you could lay that camera over and, and do uh, inspections and those types of things. So has there been any type of um, appetite for that? Have you guys, obviously, the capabilities there. Yep. Um, have you guys been able to push into that market at all? You know, uh, a little bit. Again, it's it's interesting because we talk about the regulations being behind the technology, and that's another area, specifically with the VBAT, because of its size, um, it doesn't really fit into the traditional Part 107 small UAS. So it's not like a, a Phantom or a or an Inspire or, or a Matrice right. system. How how big is the the VBAT? Yeah. So we have we have two different configurations of it. One is about 88 pounds uh, gross takeoff weight, and the other is 125 pounds. So not huge, but they do fall outside the current regulations. What's the length of it? Uh, it's about like you're talking about like tall if it's standing up, right? Eight nine feet. So I mean, it's, it's uh, pretty pretty good size. Yeah. What the wingspan? Um, that depends on the airframe. I got you. But so, uh, roughly, it's six ish, seven ish feet. Gotcha. Depending on the airframe. So, so we're not talking about something you go down to the hobby shop and buy. This no. is a big, yeah. it's an airplane. It is an airplane, yeah. yeah. And, and the FAA very much treats it like an airplane. Um, we, we follow all of the same, um, you know, FAA requirements that like a, a Cessna 172 um, follows. So we, we have, uh, we operate under what's called Part 91, which is the FAA regulation that, that drives all that stuff. So uh, we are very much engaged in the, the FAA safety 
uh, mindset in, in the way we design and, and operate our aircraft, which is great. Um, you know, it's interesting. So coming from the Marine Corps, right? Um, we always used to joke that the Marine, uh, that safety was a luxury that the Marine Corps couldn't afford. Uh, <laughs> that, that it, you know, obviously just that, that kind of mindset, um, we joked around that, you know, safety was for the Air Force, um, those types of things. Well, now my you, you no, know, know my wife's Air Force. I know, I know. And my daughter wants to go to the Air Force. No, so. I know. I know. I, I've got uh, I've got Air Force in the family pump, as well. Pump your brakes a little bit. Come on, then. but they know. I, yeah, they know. They do. They know. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, you know, it's interesting though because uh, obviously the Marine Corps, we kind of always fancy ourselves as being a little bit more rugged in the way we do things. But being in Marine uh, Aviation on the aviation side, you know, we there's there is deep deep roots of of a safety culture in in all aviation, and and that doesn't. Uh, you know that that does extend into the Marine Corps aviation as well, Navy Navy aviation, and so um, it was kind of a weird paradox of of being you know around people who you know maybe didn't always think that safety was worth the time, but then being in an, a situation in a in a field where you literally had to be safe or within the you, same you, organization. You, even. Yeah, 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 exactly. And so, uh, you know, there was some, some duplicity there with, uh, with some thought processes. Uh, and, and, you know, we've seen that go, you know, extend even to this day. I think it's, it's kind of interesting because, um, aviation is one of those things where if, if you don't do it the right way, you die. You, yeah. Well, you can die. Yeah. It's one of the things of, uh, I had that realization sitting on an airplane, um, waiting for it to take off. Mm-hmm. They had to do some maintenance on it while I was sitting on it. Mm. And um, someone said, oh, does that make you nervous? And I said, no, because the mechanic that fixed it got on the plane with us. Exactly. Yeah. And I was like, so he has to, he's going to live or die by whatever he did. So I'm good. Yeah. I feel but like he's going to fix it for real. You yeah. Know? You know, he's going to, he's going to put a hundred percent into it at uh, least. You would think so. Unless, hope so. you know, whatever's going on in his life, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know. Who knows? But now it's good. I'm, that was my last flight, but you know, and it goes back to even pilots, right? So mm-hmm. when trying to get people to, um, in the oil and gas sector and other industries as well, getting people to run checklists or follow procedures mm-hmm. and those types of things is a challenge. Uh, but one industry that I've never noticed that being a challenge in is the airline industry when pilots are looking at airplanes before they're about to fly them. And mm-hmm. and uh, the only reason I can come up with is that they're about to get on that thing, too. Yeah, skin in the game. For yeah, sure. for sure. Uh, you know, and we used to joke around about that in, in unmanned aviation. Uh, you know, you don't have that same skin in the game. So, you know, there and I think that try, partly drives the perception that, you know, unmanned aircraft aren't as safe as manned aircraft. Um you know, because the pilots aren't there, they don't live and die by the decisions that they make. And so, uh, you know, we used to joke around and sit behind our students with tasers, and if they messed up, we'd give them a tase just to, uh, you know, remind them that that their decisions. You joked that you would do that, or did you actually do that? We joked yeah, that we would go. do that. That's we what I thought that you said. That's that. what, yeah, that's what I thought you said. Yeah. I just want to make sure. Yeah, I, we would clarify. Yeah, we would not do that. No, uh, of course not. But um, wouldn't dream of it. But it would be. It would have been funny. It's a good joke. Yeah, and it, I mean, it might have actually been a, a good tactic. Too. It would have been effective, maybe. We just never know. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, we'll never, never know. Never know. Uh, so, the uh, right now you're trying to, obviously, the bulk of what you guys do is, is military. Yes. Um, have you done any civilian application? Um, not as much. Again, the regulation is... Um, I, I guess the, the yeah. question... Um, more adequately covers it by saying what part of the regulation is limiting the use of it for civilian 
Yeah. Uh, so that's that's a good question. Obviously, um, beyond visual and a sight is is a big one, um, specifically for aircraft like ours that that have endurance and altitude capabilities that are beyond you know your standard um, you know kind of commercial off the shelf unit. Yeah. Okay. So like, put that in perspective. Mm-hmm. So for my Mavic Mini, mm-hmm. you know, it says the capabilities are six kilometers you know whatever of course Mm. terrain and stuff like that will affect it but i can certainly fly that thing out of line of sight easily yeah easily and still have full control of the Mm -hmm. the system and then i'm limited from a battery perspective to Mm -hmm. 30 minutes or so uh usually it's about 22 or three minutes um to put it in perspective the v-bats range is well uh over 100 miles um we've we've done testing on on 4g 5g um that would have you know an almost unlimited and then obviously if you look at satcom that's anywhere in the world um that you can do that kind of stuff but mm-hmm. um, from an endurance perspective you're talking anywhere between six and eleven hours and uh you know altitudes anywhere up to twenty thousand feet or, or more and uh and then obviously range just with a normal antenna you're talking you know close to 100 miles so that's can you pass it off Absolutely. So yeah. then, you, so then the range is essentially infinite. Uh, you're limited by fuel. By at that fuel, point. correct. Yeah. That's yeah, what yeah. I. That, that's what I meant. Yeah. And so again, you know, when you look at the FAA requirements right now, when they look at the UAS, uh, you know, visual line of sight is uh, kind of a, a hard requirement to get around. They they do offer waivers, and you and we have in the past. Uh, you know, you can get approvals to do that uh, in specific cases, but to be able to do it, you know, all the time. You know, anytime you want to, uh, that requires a lot of uh, a lot of uh, paperwork and a lot of uh, FAA review and and things like that. So that's a really uh, a challenging thing to do for us. Um, for any UAS manufacturer right now, that's one of the areas where, uh, especially larger aircraft, where the regulations are just behind the technology. Uh, But yeah, well, the regulations weren't written for they weren't yeah fixed wing yeah you know airplane basically they weren't written for that they were written for the yeah you know the quadcopter or the you know whatever is out there that you can fly around you can go buy at the hobby shop yeah yeah absolutely we we are in a gray area um of of regulation that is you know we're we're bigger than than a, a hobby aircraft if you will but we're you know far smaller than than um you know a c-130 or a c-17 or even a, a cessna or a you know a piper cub or anything like that so what type of fuel does it use uh, so it, it can use it can use pump gas. Um, we we like to use racing fuel just because it makes us feel cool. I think uh, it's like saying racing fuel. Racing fuel. Um, shout out to VP. Um, they they make <laughs> great stuff. But uh, yeah, so you know we like to use that. Um, one of the areas that we we have investigated uh, and done some testing in is uh, heavy fuel. So basically diesel or right. jet fuel. Um, obviously, back to you know from a safety perspective, operating on ships specifically, um, you know, ships don't like fire. Uh, fire no, can do no. can do real bad things to a boat um and so you know obviously diesel fuel or jet fuel is uh, is favorable in those environments just because it's it's slightly less mm-hmm. flammable uh and so we we have done some testing on on heavy fuel variants of our of our aircraft that um rather than using you know racing high octane racing fuel can use um you know jet fuel or diesel right awesome so those regulations is there any movement uh for changing those because i'll tell you what what from a civilian perspective and you know this having worked you know specifically in the oil and gas industry um and the example on your website is inspecting an offshore platform Mm -hmm. 
any barrier to entry will have a default mechanism back to how we're doing it right now. Mm-hmm. So oh, if yeah. you say, Hey man, yeah, we can fly this. You just gotta, we've got to work through a variance with the FAA. The answer is almost yeah, inevitably going to yeah, we'll just keep doing what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Is there any movement uh, the, from the FAA towards like, okay, we recognize this is a little bit different thing mm-hmm. uh, in this application to make sense. Yep. Yeah. And so to, to the FAA's credit, they, um, they have invested a lot of time and energy in this, uh, you know, specifically in, in UAS uh, across the board. They uh, a while back they released you know new rules on how to provide what's called a type certificate, um, which is essentially you know if you go fly on a seven thirty seven, it received a type certificate, which means the FAA reviewed their uh, you know the engineering, the the drawings of it. You know they said this aircraft built this way is sound. Mm-hmm. And so that way, you know, every aircraft that comes off the line, as long as it has a production certificate, they can kind of do a quick review of it, a uh, quick inspection and say, yep, that's good to, good to fly, right? So most large manned aircraft have uh, go through that type certificate process. Well, nothing like that existed for, uh, for UAS. Uh, and so there was really no way for us to get around these rules because every, every single time you try to do it, it was a one-off. So the FAA has made some, some progress in, in creating, um, you know, type certificate rules for for UAS so that we can go through that process and get our aircraft stamped off as safe to fly, airworthy to operate in the national airspace. And and obviously that opens up a lot of space for things, uh, you know, applications like ours, but also you see a lot with with like delivery aircraft, part 135 Mm -hmm. for, you know, like Wing and Amazon and all those companies that are um, trying to deliver things uh, with with drones. I just, in my mind, I I think, you know, if you look, look forward, a hundred years mm. and it, it will be it, the reaction to us looking up and seeing a drone in the air will be the same as it is right now for us looking up and seeing an airplane it's just like oh there's an airplane yeah yeah uh, it's it's just I, I can't imagine it getting less yeah uh, less useful yeah no the the utility is going to continue to increase uh, as the technology improves the endurance of of you know battery powered aircraft improve and as the regulations catch up with with the uh, you know with the industry um, and it will be nice because obviously, you know, I don't, I don't know if you've ever experienced it, but I've had it where I've been out flying somewhere and people have threatened me, you know, for flying a drone. No, I, I tend to not be very invasive yeah. uh, when I fly things. I know you're a little bit more invasive, well, but you know, when you're what are you going to do? Yeah, uh, but no, I've actually not not experienced that. But also, I yeah. probably don't fly as much as you. Yeah, and and it's it, it's not an uncommon thing for uh, for you know commercial drone operators, uh, even you know operating you know in the small UAS space. Um, there you get varied responses from you know hey that's so that's so cool can i see it can i fly it you know those types of things to uh you know you flew near my house i'm sure you were trying to look into my window and and look at my wife or my daughter um and a lot of that is born out of um i hate to use the word ignorance but just well it is it is uh, about the capabilities like i think people watch a lot of movies and they think that drones can do things that they can't right um and so there's this perception of drones being able to look through your roof and see everything that's happening in your house and uh and that's just not the case yet yet i love the <laughs> word yet there yeah it, you're right though i mean but and the the in my experience generally the response is hey man that's cool mm. or uh, one thing's for sure when you're flying one it gets a lot of attention usually yeah. uh, when people notice hey there's a thing in the air mm-hmm. that they're still new enough and unique yeah. enough that people don't see them every day uh that it does get some attention and so with that there 
is an obvious need for responsibility and, mm. and operating it responsibly and those types Absolutely. of things. And, and I think the average hobbyist that just goes and, uh, like literally I bought mine on, on Amazon and, mm-hmm. and it was at my house in two days and I got it and charged it and flew like it was that easy. And, it, and, yeah. and I, and, and I knew a bit more just cause you and I are friends and I've had one before and, and that kind of stuff. But I mean, anyone can do that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, absolutely. Other than um, Shield, I know you've got a, a you mentioned earlier Drone Academy, mm-hmm. and uh, and so tell me a little bit about that and and what that is looking to achieve. Yeah, uh, so like I mentioned earlier, that that is an an online uh, kind of e learning tool for people who are interested in drones, essentially uh, primarily focused on on getting people ready for for Part One Hundred Seven certification. So um, there are two ways you can fly a drone. Uh, one is under part 107, which is, uh, you know, kind of the default. That's if, if you want to do it for anything that's not just strictly hobby, you know, if you want to create a YouTube page, if you want to, you know, take pictures of your house to put it on the market to sell it, if you want to, you know, do whatever, uh, you fly under part 107. And that requires you to actually go and take a test uh, with the FAA and, and you get, you know, an actual pilot certificate card uh, for small UAS. Uh, and so that's that's one way, and that's one of our areas of focus is is helping people prepare for that exam and and you know learn about aviation safety and 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 how to be a a, a safe uh, pilot really, and how to how to share the airspace uh, responsibly. And then the other thing there's there's um, you know a carve out if you will for for recreational use. So you don't have to be a part one of seven pilot if you just want to go out to the park and fly for fun. Um, you can do that um, on your own. Uh, but even now, the FAA has actually put together what's called the trust exam, and and that is required for for even for hobbyists to go and take. So, technically, before you fly at all, um, you need to have taken one of those two tests. Now, the trust exams you can do online. Um, it's it doesn't cost you anything, and it's super easy. But even that is just uh, it's meant to give you a kind of a high level understanding of this is what it means to to operate in these different types of airspace. And, and, you know, this is where you may see aircraft and understanding, you know, basic weather and things that can impact the the safety of your flight. So, I mean, ultimately the, the end goal is to minimize damage and and injury and death. Uh, So keep your drone away from other aircraft, keep your drone from away from people and buildings, uh, you know, kind of common sense stuff that you would think, but uh, you know, apparently there's been enough drones run into buildings that, they felt like they needed to talk about it. I've hit a building with mine. Yeah, I know. So I appreciate you bringing that up. <laughs> I uh, wasn't going to throw you under the bus, but I appreciate you bringing it. Yeah, with each of mine, yeah, uh, frankly. Well, but you know, uh, it, it you happens. Know. It is. It is a skill. Um, I, I try to get. I try skill. to get a little cutesy sometimes. See how well, close I can get to it. Yeah, you know, it's. Um, everybody gets to that point where they feel like they're comfortable enough that they can start getting. Well, I've never gotten to that point, but it has not stopped me. Yeah. <laughs> I always appreciate yeah. your boldness. Yeah. No, never. It's never stopped me. I, I may not. Uh, I may not know how to do it, but I'm confident, and that's all that matters. And, well, <laughs> well, until it's gone. But, if you can uh, replace it, that's all. That uh, it, so when I bought my last uh, drone, I reached out mm-hmm. to you, and I said, uh, "Is there one that I can buy that is small enough? I don't have to register it." So with, that's mm-hmm. what the the mini was yep. built. So you don't have to register it with the FAA. Do you still have to take the the test uh so uh anything over like like we mentioned anything over 250 grams you have to register anything under that uh you don't um there there is uh i believe technically still any time that you're operating even if it's under 250 i believe you you may still have to take that trust uh exam i'll tell you what's interesting is uh just how easily um using your drone can throw you into having to be 
fully certified. I mean, yeah. literally, uh, my dad reached out and he's like, hey, can you come video some stuff here at our HOA that we can put on our website for our mm-hmm. HOA page? And even though I didn't charge him mm-hmm. for any of that, I would have still had to been. Yeah, in in the most technical understanding of the regulations, Correct. yeah. Uh, and, and obviously there's... Um, you know, there's two parts of rules. There's what the rule says and then, you know, what the rule actually means. Yeah, or the what, intent yeah. of it. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, technically, uh, anything that is not strictly recreation. So how they define that is a little tricky now. The rule actually gets even more complicated because it the the FAA has interpreted it as the intent of the, at the takeoff. So um, if you took off, for example, and you said, I'm just going to go to the park and fly. And so you're flying around the park for fun. And then you see there's a structure fire or a major crash or something crazy that happens on a road near the park, and you scoot on over there, and you happen to capture vintage, you know, footage of that crash. And, and mm-hmm. let's say um, a news agency reaches out and says, hey, we'd like to buy that footage. You can technically sell that footage. And even though that's a commercial activity, your intent at the time of flight was not commercial. So, you know, again, and, and there's not... You understand how that'll be used by absolutely. people like me, yeah, right? Absolutely. Like, well, my intent was just to fly around this neighborhood, yeah. and they bought that footage from me. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and that is, you know, again, <coughs> that is a, a loophole that the FAA is kind of aware of, and I think there's it's a you know kind of an honor system for stuff like that. But also, when you think about the sheer number of aircraft that are registered, drones that have been registered um, recreationally and and commercially. Um, it's a, it's a large number, and the FAA is not today uh, really staffed. Like, as a manned aviator, there's something called a ramp check, right? So, because they know that as a pilot, you're probably taking off from an airport or a runway. Makes sense. So, yeah. So they can send uh, an aviation inspector, an ASI out there, and they can say, "Hey, um, you know, I'd like to see your paperwork. I'd like to, you know, make sure that you're current. Make sure that you you have registration for the aircraft." You know, all the basic stuff that right. that matters. Um, and they can do that pretty easily because you're a captive audience at that airport. But with drones, that's not the case. You can take off from anywhere. You can be flying from anywhere. And, you know, there's not roving gangs of FAA inspectors just, you know, hanging out on the street. You with, sure? Well, I don't know, man. Uh, <laughs> I mean, they could be plain clothes. They, yeah, the chances they, are they don't exist. You're yeah, right. Chances, yeah. So, uh, you know, really, when you, when you talk about it like that, it's... Um, a lot of people roll the dice on that and they, you know, they gamble and maybe do things that are outside the law because the likelihood of them getting, getting punished is, is small. Uh, and that's, that's a challenge for the industry right now because, you know, every, I always tell people that, you know, students that come through, the second you start flying, you're an ambassador for the, for the entire industry. Um, you know, whether you're a hobbyist or a commercial operator, people look at you and they think that all, all drone operators are whatever you are. Mm-hmm. And so um, if you're reckless and, uh, you know, you don't pay any attention to the rules and regulations and general, you know, basic aviation safety protocols, well, that only makes the industry look bad and it only makes regulation harder on us um, mm-hmm. as an industry. So um, something that you see in manned aviation that, that we're, we're trying to push through education and, and you know, um, just general culture development in the unmanned systems space is that very, very deep history of of safety culture of self-policing our, you know, our own, you know, in manned aviation, if you're flying and, and, you know, your, your right seater does something stupid, you're going to call them on it because well, you're in the left seat. <laughs> well, yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, you know, and that's, uh, 
you know that's that's true you know even if you just see your buddy who's you know who's being reckless you're going to call him on it because you care about them and about the industry and about you know if it's a hobby for you you care about your hobby um and and so that we haven't always seen that in the unmanned space uh, and and we're starting to get there uh, but it takes again because a lot of drone pilots don't think of themselves as aviators in the truest sense so there's not that sense of of ownership in the in the industry or ownership in the hobby and and so you don't always you get some resistance to that that self-policing yeah that makes sense and you know to your point the the vast majority of people that go and fly these things will never have anything happen yep uh and they may crash their thing but they're never going to have anything that's going to bring the force of the regulation down on them Mm -hmm. the problem is the thing that does bring that down is that you brought an aircraft out of the sky. Yeah. Uh, and, and there's real consequence to that. And, and uh, it's important for people to understand that there is a real responsibility when you're sharing airspace with, you know, airplanes with, yeah. with people in them. Yeah. Not only that. Um, and that's, that's obvious. I mean, I, I fly a lot. I, I don't want to die in an airplane crash. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know anybody who does. No. Uh, and, and so, uh, but beyond that, even when you look at, um, you know, a, an aircraft like a, a Phantom is not huge, but it's big enough that if it hits you in the head from 500 feet or 400 feet, you know, it's not going to feel great. Uh, and so, you know, when you look at things like just flying over people or flying over a road, um, you know, people assume that these aircraft have, have good reliability and, and frankly, they don't, um, comparatively speaking to like a manned aircraft. So your your drone there's plenty of reports of like i was flying my drone and then it just stopped working and it fell out of the sky mm-hmm. um whether it be you know battery failure or an esc failure that caused the motor to go out or i've had a couple of times with my my mini for whatever reason it just lost its gps signaling mm-hmm. and it just starts twitching around and mm-hmm. doing weird stuff and yeah man i just land it and go right straight there. down to the ground with it yeah because pe- and people don't think about that they assume that it's going to continue working and so you know you'll see things like people flying over roads well I mean, how would as a driver, how would you respond if you're cruising along at you know 50 miles an hour, 60 miles an hour on a freeway, and all of a sudden a drone falls out of the sky and hits your windshield? Yeah, you may swerve, you may do. I mean, you don't know what's going to happen, but most likely it's going to result in some sort of. It would be unnerving, at least. to say the least. Yeah, at uh, least. And, and you're right, and and that's something that, you know, I think that the average hobbyist probably doesn't think about mm-hmm. is, okay, I'm going to take off. And if, uh, if, if things go unplanned, what then? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and we think about that somewhat when we get in a vehicle or whatever. Uh, but to your point, we just think, man, I'm going to take this thing up in the air and it's going to fly forever long. The battery lets it fly and then I'm going to put a new battery in it and keep going. And yeah. sometimes you have mechanical failures that result in a loss and it, it just falls out of the, out of the sky. Yeah. And, and, uh, and so the thing is, you know, obviously in manned aviation, you have, you know, pre pre-flight briefs that you brief and Hey, if this emergency happens, this is what we're going to do. And, and so, you know, in the event that something happens, you've already worked through in your head and mm-hmm. as a crew, how you're going to respond to that. And, uh, and, and so again, one of those things that you don't always see in, in unmanned aviation with drones and people will just like, to your point, throw it up in the air, start flying. And, uh, there's no redundancy in most of these aircraft. If you have one motor that goes out, that drone's done. It's not going to limp home on three just because of the way they're designed. So I know it's going to spiral out of control to the ground. Yes, yes, it will. Um, and so, you know, without that redundancy, that, that safety margin of performance, um, it doesn't take much to, to create a, a, a mishap, an, an incident. And so you see things, 
you know, like recently, I think it was the Bengals game. Somebody posted a video on on YouTube and on Facebook of them basically flying into the stadium. I think it was during the during the postseason or something like that. But into the stadium, actually down like near the field, they almost hit one of the uh, one of the guide wires for uh, one of the you know oh, yeah, the one of the run cams cameras, and then you know flew it over the crowd and all these things that uh, you know. Luckily, in that case, nothing nothing bad happened. The aircraft didn't 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 fail. And that person has some sick footage. They do, and you know the FAA was very interested in it, and so they're having <laughs> some very interesting conversation now. I suppose. Would imagine, um, you know, but but that kind of what we refer to in the industry is just gross negligence. Sure. Um, you know, luckily in that case, it didn't. Nothing happened, but. Like you don't even have to know the regulation to know that's like, probably a not idea. allowed. Not a good, yeah. yeah, you're like, I don't know if you can do that, but I feel like you can. Probably can't do that. I didn't see that, but what I did see was uh, in the Olympic ski event mm. that uh, yeah. that I think it was a it was a pretty good size yeah, one. Yeah, I think it was that, a, a Matrice 600 or yeah, something. Yeah, like, fell out of the sky behind that skier, and yeah. imagine that skier is going down the slope at 60 miles an hour or something. Yeah, that, that's fatal. It could be. It could yeah. be fatal. Yeah, I mean, when you think about the fact that even in a small UAS space, you can go up to 55 pounds, right? That's the cutoff. So imagine getting hit in the face with a 55-pound brick that's fallen from a couple hundred feet while you're skiing 60 miles an hour. The sheer amount of force that that would generate? It'd be horrible. And I mean, It'd be a bad day. I mean, you remember when Fabio got hit in the face with a goose? <laughs> and that was just catastrophic. <laughs> And that's a goose, man. That that's gives a, goose, a little bit. It gives bit. a little bit, yeah, yeah. So you can imagine with a drone. but uh, And a notoriously soft animal. <laughs> I hate Fabio, though. <laughs> I don't know why. All of them do. Just, I don't know. But uh, anyhow, well, man, I've been looking for an excuse for a long time just to get to sit down and record our conversations. Uh, and usually they go much longer than this, but we can't yeah. for the purposes of this. But yeah. uh, uh, I appreciate everything. If if people want to find out more information about Shield or Drone Academy, where can they go? Yeah, so uh, Shield Shield.ai is our website. It talks all about our different aircraft and capabilities. Uh, or DroneAcademy.com uh, is is my side project for for anything uh, Part One Hundred Seven or drone related. And in fairness, I've not logged into my Drone Academy account in quite some time. And well, you gave me that, and it was very generous of you. Yeah. Well, you know, we've done a lot uh, since since the last time you logged in. We we launched an Android and iOS app now, so. I mean, it's kind of a big deal. I'm probably going to have to <laughs> reset my password. <laughs> Let me know. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll talk to the guys and get you set Man, up. Man, I, I really appreciate your time, though, uh, sitting down and talking with me and, and uh, having me at your house to, yeah. to sit here. It's uh, it's great. Um, but, uh, man, thanks so much for being a part of the, the Mission Zero podcast. And thanks for putting stuff in the air that's keeping our operators safe on the ground. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's an honor. Awesome, Appreciate man. it, man. Thank thanks, you. Thanks, bud. See you. Yeah, take care. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show and accept the mission. Please subscribe to the Mission Zero podcast on your preferred streaming service and be sure to give us a five-star review.